When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co host, Dolores Alfieri. And we are back after a short break on releasing podcast episodes. And we have an episode for you today, which is very relevant to our country right now. We've interviewed a woman who we will introduce momentarily, who grew up in an Italian immigrant neighborhood and has made it all the way to the White House. So more on her in a moment. Dolores, how are you doing? Hello, Anthony. Hello, Amici. It has been a little bit. How's everything going? Everything is good. You know, it's into the holiday season here, which is, uh, I can't believe that that has happened already. And we've been on our end, of course, prepping some holiday episodes. Yeah. We've received your comments and your emails. Just making sure we haven't gone anywhere, and we haven't. We're here, and we actually have some great episodes lined up, so definitely stay tuned. We're going to make sure to see you through the holiday season, as Anthony was saying, and beyond. And Anthony, uh, one thing that I want to remind everybody, especially since uh, we just went past Thanksgiving and now everyone's gearing up for Christmas, is that we have terrific gifts in our online store, and we really hope everyone checks it out because, you know, as Italian Americans, our family, that's the most important thing to us. So what better gifts to give Nuana and the kids, the babies, the teenagers, than, you know, mugs and t-shirts. We even have aprons that express one of our strongest values. Prima la familia, family first. So everyone check it out. It's italianamericanpodcast.com forward slash store and there'll be a bunch of sales happening in the next few weeks so check it out definitely helps us to keep the podcast going as well yeah absolutely we do appreciate all the support out there and again we are just excited about doing this and actually in our story segment at the end of this episode it's going to be dolores and myself just reflecting on the fact that we've done this now for a year and some of the things that we've learned and we're excited about you know doing that and celebrating that with you because you're what is helped to keeping the podcast going and keeping it growing actually, which is awesome. That's right. We just passed, I think our, our first episode was maybe November 15th of last year, if I'm remembering correctly. So we're just a couple of weeks past that one year anniversary. So we're going to talk a little bit about what we've learned throughout doing the show for a year. It's going to be fun. Good conversation. So stick around for it. All right. So before we introduced our guest for today, who is Anita McBride, We'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. 
We work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. This is Gabrielle Maletti, Director of Programs at the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your NIAF in the News. As a nonprofit organization, NIAF's work is entirely dependent on your generosity. Please consider a donation to NIAF on Giving Tuesday, November 29th, and celebrate your Italian heritage by donating at www.weareneaf.com. Your contributions help us support deserving students and the Italian-American community through educational programming and scholarships. And do you know an Italian-American college student who has never been to Italy? Then the Ambassador Peter F. Secchia Voyage Discovery Program is for them. The all-expenses-paid trip will bring 20 lucky Italian-American students to NIAF's Region of Honor this upcoming June. The application deadline will end on January 31, 2017. And don't forget, NIAF will begin accepting scholarship applications on December 1st, 2016. The scholarship cycle will then close on March 1st, 2017. And lastly, mark your calendars and join NIAF in the Big Apple on March 22nd, 2017 for a memorable evening at the legendary Tipriani 42nd Street for the NIAF New York Gala. NIAF will honor distinguished Italian-Americans, including the founder of Skybridge Capital and co-host of Wall Street Week, Anthony Scaramucci. For more information on all NIAF in the news, please visit www.neaf.org. All right, now I'm excited to introduce our guest for today's episode, Anita Bevacqua McBride. Anita gave us a wonderful interview. She's had an amazing career. I'm going to read through some of her accomplishments to set the stage for our discussion with her. Anita Bevacqua McBride is executive in residence at the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies in the School of Public Affairs at American University in Washington, D.C. She directs programming and national conferences on the legacies of America's first ladies and their historical influence on politics, policy, and global diplomacy. McBride previously served as assistant to President George W. Bush and Chief of Staff to First Lady Laura Bush from 2005 to 2009, directing the staff's work on the wide variety of domestic and global initiatives in which Mrs. Bush was involved. She had primary responsibility for the First Lady's efforts to support U.S. foreign policy objectives in human rights, women's empowerment, global health, and human freedom. She directed Mrs. Bush's travel to 67 countries in four years, including historic visits to Afghanistan, the Middle East, and the Thai-Burma border, which is amazing. McBride's White House service spans two decades in three presidential administrations, including as director of White House personnel under Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, and as director of the U.S. Speakers Bureau at the United States Information Agency. Also, under President George W. Bush, McBride served as a special assistant for White House management as senior advisor in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of International Organizations and as the State Department's White House liaison. She's a member of several organizations, including the U.S. Afghan Women's Council, the J. William Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Board, 
the White House Historical Association, and of course, the National Italian American Foundation. She is extraordinary. You're about to hear a really powerful interview with her. But before we jump in, Dolores, why don't you take us in with a quote? All right. So we chose this quote for several reasons. And one is what we're going to talk about with Anita, which is how she kind of ended up in politics, much to her surprise, and how she basically just kind of kept saying yes to this path that unfolded before her. And also what Anthony and I are going to talk about in the story segment later on, which was, you know, basically saying yes to this journey of doing the show and the importance of saying yes to life. So this quote is from Joseph Campbell, the one and only. The big question is whether you are going to be able to say a hearty yes to your adventure. And now it's time for the main segment of our episode, and we're thrilled to have with us today Anita McBride as our guest. Anita, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with both of you today. And Anita is really busy right now because there's so much going on with the recent election. And of course, she's a source for a lot of people to turn to, especially with issues regarding the transition and First Lady. So, Anita, we really appreciate you making the time to speak with us about being Italian American. (laughs) <laughs> My pleasure. We've already had one major Italian-American appointment to the new that's cabinet, right. so that's great news for our community. Absolutely We're- wonderful. So, Anita, we usually start the show by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their upbringing. You know, family's so important to us as Italian-Americans, so mm-hmm. we ask you to tell us, you know, where you came from and, and what your life was like growing up as, in regards to being Italian-American. Sure. Well, I always, whenever I'm asked where I'm from, even now that I've lived in Washington for 30 years or more than 30 years, I always say I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. I mean, those Mm. are my roots. That's my founding. That's my grounding. That's my foundation and grew up, you know, in a uh, immigrant uh, community, Italian, you know, mostly Italians on the block where I lived, went to the Italian uh, built church, uh, Holy Rosary Church in the east side of Bridgeport, went to the to the parish school. So it was foundation and really a structure for my whole life. My parents, grandparents, all born in Italy. My father's Mm. family from the Calabria region. My mother's naval family from the Campania region. And first generation Italian American, it defined everything about me. We grew up with Italian being spoken in the household, the dialects, of course, but we responded in English like a lot of uh, Mm. first-generation immigrants did. The culture, the Italian culture surrounded us in everything, and food and music. My father was a musician. The church, of course, and all of its noisy festivals Mm. that we always were, you know, a part of, that was the definition of my life. And I, you know, have carried it through, of course, to adulthood. My mother passed away when I was three years old, leaving me and my sister. She was nine. I was three. My father never remarried. That's really of the old school and old generation that felt, you know, there'd never be anybody like my mother and didn't really want to bring anyone else into the household. We were raised by my mother's grandparents, but they lived like typical of multi-generational family style. We lived right next door to my grandparents. So the move from my parents' house to my grandparents' house was actually quite easy. 
You know, and it is like, all, you know, all of us, we all have a story to tell that defines who as individuals and defines how we view the world. And so I was very, very fortunate to have so many family, you know, cousins, aunts, and then close family friends of my grandparents in particular, who assumed a role and supported me in growing up. You know, so I'm so very fortunate. You know, it's interesting. I'm uh, here. It's, you know, Thanksgiving is this week. I'm back here in New York, and I'm with my mother, who, Anita, you've actually met before. Right. And we were just talking last night, of course, as listeners know, you know, my father passed away about eight years ago, so my mother's a widow. And we right. were just talking last night, and I said to her, you know, as strange as it would be, I wouldn't blame you for wanting some companionship. And she sure. she said, it's the old school way. And she said, I right. have one husband, and that's it. And right. I wouldn't want to bring anyone else into this house. I want my kids to always know that they can come here and it's their home. It's kind of amazing to me. I respect yeah. that. It's just a sacrifice for them personally, but it's a sacrifice they're willing to make because they look at a bigger picture. They look at their family. And as you said mm-hmm. at the outset of this, it's all about family and what's best for the family. And that was their decision and, and my father's decision as well. And I respect that. But it wasn't until I was much older that I really realized how much of a sacrifice that that was for him. And as a young child, when I was only three when I lost my mother, I was sort of very ignorant to the implications <laughs> to everybody else around me, of course. But life goes on and, you know, we're, we're very blessed ultimately. And it sounds like you had a terrific community around you, which I'm sure made all the difference. Right. It did, of course. I'm still very close to a lot of my, particularly the, the neighbors and friends that, you know, we grew up with, also Italian-Americans. And I don't get back up to Connecticut as much as I would like as a lot of the older, you know, generation has passed away. But I still do have cousins up there. And we are still to the, to the greatest extent possible that we can still part of each other's life. How much do you regret answering in English all those years? Well, you know, I I regret it a lot, but I will say this. It gave me a great ear for Italian. And I was always, and consequently, really had a gift with the languages. And I studied Italian and Spanish and French in high school and college in particular. And then I did a junior year abroad to Italy when I was in college. And the fact that I had the background and um, the language to a good, solid enough extent I did very well and really learned how to speak the language beautifully and came home quite proficient and used it for quite some time. But again, then when the older generation passes on and my dad and others, aunt, I don't practice it quite as much as I can, mm. but I do travel to Italy every year. And with the Italian American Foundation trip, so I get you know a chance to use it. It really is a gift that keeps on giving because it comes back and it, it impresses my kids when I can I do it. My bigger <laughs> regret. My bigger regret is that I did not teach Italian to my children. That mm-hmm. is my bigger regret. So, Anita, I want to jump in a little bit to your career here. It's been an extraordinary career that you've had. We introduced you earlier in the show to our listeners, kind of going through your bio, and you served as assistant to President George W. Bush and chief of staff to First Lady Laura Bush, which must have been, I'm sure, an amazing experience. And my question for you is, when... Did you know that this is the area that you wanted to get into in your career? Well, it's a great question. And the, and the simple answer is 
I really didn't know. And I never could have planned this path. I mean, growing up, again, as you know, you heard me say, Bridgeport, a very traditional, you know, growing up or went to elementary school and high school and went on to college, really the first in my immediate family to go on to college. But because I had grown up with so many elderly people around me, I was really quite interested in medicine. That's what I applied for in college. I was a pre-med student. I wanted to go into ultimately gerontology because I really, I was a volunteer in Bridgeport Hospital in Connecticut. I volunteered at a nursing home across the street from my high school. I really felt a connection and a sensitivity of caring for the elderly because my elderly grandparents took care of me. And I was with both of them early to their last breath. So that was my goal in life, and I got to college, and I was enrolled in pre-med at UConn, University of Connecticut, did well in some subjects, but not in the core subjects that ultimately would make you successful as a doctor. I was very weak in the sciences. It was a real disappointment for me, particularly in chemistry. I love biology, but chemistry, was, I really struggled. And by the end of my second year in college, I really had to, because my grades were going down, and I was always an A student. I was really worried about it, and so I saw a an advertisement for a new program that UConn was offering to the junior year abroad students was a new program for Florence, Italy, that they were just launching, and this was 1979, and I signed up for it. I thought, I'm going to just do something completely different, signed up for it, was accepted, part of the inaugural class, and went, and I didn't even tell my family that I was going to do it. I was working my way through college, so I had money to put myself, my own money to put down for the deposit. So I enrolled in that, had a wonderful, extraordinary year as a student abroad. I really felt I grew up so much. I felt so independent. I felt really so proud to be on my own. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, you know, doing well with the language. I was taking classes at the University of Florence in uh, literature, and it was a great year. But it was also a pivotal year in terms of what was happening around the world and specifically what was happening to the United States. In November of 1979, the American hostages were taken in Iran. And I was living abroad as an American student in a foreign country and with going to a university with foreign students from everywhere around the world, including the Middle East and including Iran. And the response and reaction by the international students to this happening to Americans really was very troubling to me. It was mm-hmm. celebratory and to a great extent and burning the American flag. And I had never seen anything like that. I grew up in a family that obviously America was their adopted you know, country. Italy was their native, but they were proud of their adopted country. It gave them everything. Otherwise, why would they have left? So right. I grew up very patriotic. My family was never involved in politics, but they, when they became citizens, they never took lightly the ability to vote, and they always voted. I mean, that's the extent of what it was. They were all registered Democrats. They were all union. Everyone was a union uh, member. But seeing that happen really sparked something in me. I was angry. I was confused, disappointed, and I really began to grow up from the sense of recognizing that you're an American, you grew up thinking very differently about the United States, and you have to defend it, and Mm. you have to support it, and you have to get involved, and you have to get engaged. When I got home from Italy in the spring of, or the summer of 1980, it was the height of the presidential campaign of that year between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. 
And I had a college friend who had graduated a year before me who was involved in the Reagan campaign and called me and said, we could really use some volunteers here at the Hartford, Connecticut office. We could really use some volunteers. Why don't you come and help us work the phones and that kind of thing, go door to door. And I said, sure. And I really didn't know anything about politics, but I liked that sort of retail side of it, calling people on the phone, doing door knocking. It was exciting. And then, of course, Ronald Reagan won. And I was an anomaly at my university because there were very few Republicans. And I wasn't a registered Republican at the time. That put me on that track, getting involved in that campaign. Then he won. He moved to Washington. And I was finishing school, and I wanted to come to Washington, too. Just something had really sparked me about being involved in the campaign. And the rhetoric of the campaign was appealing to Americans to be proud of their country and that our place in the world was important and our safety and our security was important. I had just left an environment where I was very insecure, obviously, based on what happened in Italy after the hostage taking. So I responded to it. I got involved. After I finished uh, school, found out I was short 12 credits to graduate because of my earlier struggles with the sciences. So I found out about a program here in Washington at American University that would allow me to get the final 12 credits and also do an internship. And it brought me to where I wanted to be, which was to Washington, D.C. It was the spring of 1981, so I came here in uh, that fall semester and then finished and stayed in Washington ever since. Wow. It's kind of refreshing to hear like a story of a young person kind of going in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. that it seems many college students uh, these days go. And, you know, this is the Italian American podcast. Of course, I'm looking at it through that lens. I'm going to attempt to connect some dots here. We had Gay Talese on the show and one of the, you know, many kind of sharp insights Gay had was that he thought that the majority, generalizing, of course, of Italian-Americans tend to lean conservative yeah. these days. And, you know, part of what we talked about was largely what you kind of just mentioned in passing, which is our experience is that our families came to this country and it gave them everything. We have this pride and this faith in the country. Well, it's a respect. It's respect for, you right. know, a rule of law. It's respect to be able to use your voice. Absolutely. We all have every right to do that. But there's a certain amount of pride in the the fact that you are living in a country where you have all those freedoms to do that and how you choose to use it for, you know, a bigger purpose is really what's important. And that's what I learned. And that's what I learned ultimately working in the government. I was very, very blessed to work for some extraordinary leaders, including, you know, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. I mean, these, these to me were giants amongst men. They were truly the patriots there was a different era i totally get it but it instilled in a lot of young people who came from all over the country to work for them it really instilled in us a a culture of service and of sacrifice and if you look particularly george hw bush's story i mean this is a guy at 18 years old when uh, america was attacked in pearl harbor you know he left his studies to join the war effort. And so many like him from his era. Just, you know, an extraordinary example. We're very lucky to have that in our country. I think one of the things that is really interesting about your story, Anita, and Dolores and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, it's this idea of 
Italians came here, and they immigrated here. They raised their children to this point where now the a lot of Italian Americans have very important roles in the United States, right? So like they brought their kids here, they raised them, they said, "Listen, we want you to learn the language here. We want you to assimilate." And of course, with the hard work and the work ethic of Italians, they tend to succeed. I remember Dolores, we were talking, I forget if it was about the Italian-American TV series or whatever it was, and we talked about how Mario Cuomo was one of the first very visible Italians. It really wasn't that long ago. Right, and he had to beat back all the stereotypes um, to get to that position, and it, it stuck with him from quite some time that he was a person of the people. Of course, Italians were so proud, and I... Yeah, remember 1985 or 6 when Ronald Reagan nominated Anthony Scalia. That was huge for an Italian to reach the highest court in the land. And how the Italian-American community mobilized to support that nomination, that was so extraordinary. You know, working in the White House at the time and just knowing that, how much they were deployed and utilized by President Reagan to get the support in the Congress for this extraordinary person. Yeah, it's great. It's just great to see how so many of these Italian immigrants raised their children and inspired them to now get involved in their new country. And that's it just continues to happen. You know, now it keeps happening. That's right. It continues to happen. It's happening again. We're really, really lucky. I just want to back up a second and ask you, could you tell us a little bit about your role in the Reagan administration? Sure. Oh, my gosh. I started the lowliest of positions, and I absolutely (laughs) love it. And I talk about it as really the foundation for me, but also such a recognition of how important it is for elected members to stay connected to the public. I was hired to read Ronald Reagan's mail in the correspondence (laughs) office at the White House. I wanted so badly to work for him, I would do whatever it took. And so I was trained along with a number of other young people that came in after the campaign to read mail, to identify mail that should go to the president direct as a sample, a reflective sample. So remind me what, where, oh, I started reading Ronald Reagan's mail and it was trained by a woman who was hired in the last days of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, if you can believe that. You know what? So, but it was so great. And what I learned from that was just how important it is for people to stay connected to their leaders, that they could write to the president of the United States and get a response. It's just extraordinary. So I did that for maybe a year, a little more than a year. Then I got moved to another office and the correspondence of writing responses to the president's mail. And I got moved to a special message and I just kept moving up the correspondence track. It was all part of management administration of the White House. An opportunity opened up to go into the personnel office, and I was hired to do that at the end of the Reagan administration in 1987. They were planning towards the transition, prepared for change of administration. So I was hired into personnel, became the director of White House personnel, and did that job for five and a half years, you know, the last year and a half of Ronald Reagan and all four years of George H.W. Bush. Yeah. including, you know, making it through the tough election loss of 1992 and managing that transition out for the Bushes and helping the transition in of the Clinton. So I've been through several of these. I understand sort of the mechanics of what's going on even right now, you know, in our country. It's, a, it's fast and furious. You get 75 days to have the, the greatest corporate takeover in the world. 
you know, a budget of $4 trillion and millions of employees and 4,000 political appointees. And it's a lot, but it happens because we have a smooth transfer of power process here. And I was very, very privileged to see that, you know, have a front row seat to that multiple times. But I have to say at the end of the Bush administration in 1993, January of 93, I never really intended going back into government. I thought I had my time. I had my chance. I worked two different White Houses, two great presidents. But the election of 2000, which you remember and your listeners may know or not know, we didn't know for five weeks who the president of the United States was going to be. And because of that, there was this, a shortened transition was shortened even more. And so the incoming George W. Bush team called on a few people who had worked in the White House before, who had worked in transitions, who had worked in personnel, to help get this up, ramped up fast. And that's what I did. But at that point, you know, I had two children, a three-month-old and a three-year-old. So I really wasn't interested in going back into White House hours. But I said, of course, I will help. I'll help for give you four months. I'll help to stand up the office and train someone else to come in to do the job as personnel director. Well, turns out four months turned into eight years of various <laughs> different positions working for the Bush administration in management and administration and then also over at the State Department as the White House liaison. And then for the second term, the extraordinary phone call that I got to come interview with Laura Bush to be her chief of staff. And that was just something I couldn't have predicted. I mean, she knew of me. Of course, I knew of her and knew I had helped her staff. But for in full, you know, disclosure, my husband, Tim, had been the personal aide to George H.W. Bush for five years as vice president and president. And so there was a familiarity with our family. And I think for Laura Bush knew that I would have a sensitivity and an understanding of the kind of loyalty and discretion that's necessary for a job to be chief of staff. Plus, I had the background of working in the White House. I understood the White House, so it would be easy transition for me to help her in the second term. And then also, I had come from the State Department, and she wanted to do so much more globally. So all of those factors really came together to make me an attractive candidate to her. And it was the capstone of my career. We Amazing. traveled, it would travel <laughs> all over the world and people from all over the world and just in all 50 states and it just really true privilege to be able to do it. What are the folks back home? What were their reaction to you <laughs> making it to the White House? Well, I tell you, honestly, one of the most vivid memories that I have is when my father came to visit me in 1987 when I'd become director of White House personnel. And at that time in the Eisenhower Executive Office building, your name was put on the door. They don't do that anymore. They just put the title of the position because it's really hard to keep changing the names all the time. But they put my name on the door saying, like, gold letters, and here's my dad, an immigrant, never got beyond the third grade, comes to visit me because it happened to be the time that President Reagan was either coming back from a trip or maybe came back from his cancer surgery on his colon, and there was a big arrival ceremony on the South Lawn. I invited my dad to come down and see it. So he came to my office first, saw my name on the door, and just started to weep. 
And I fully understand that now, what that meant to him. Here he was, an immigrant from Italy, was never beyond the third grade education, worked in a factory his whole life, and here's his daughter in one generation working for the president of the United States. It was an overwhelming feeling for me to understand what that meant to him. And my story is a story that many people can tell, honestly, that we have all, as you mentioned earlier, you grow up in an immigrant family and instill this hardworking nature, you know, in you. And, and this country gives you every possible opportunity. And it did. It manifested itself in that one moment for my father to see that on the wall. I'll never forget it. I tried to share the White House with as many family members as possible and <laughs> yeah. friends from Bridgeport that would come sure. to visit when I became Laura Bush's chief of staff. We went to Bridgeport, Connecticut, to the Barnum Museum, and we did an event there. And, you know, the mayor was thrilled and the town, kind of, you know, turned out. And they were proud of a Native daughter working in the White House at these levels. It was really a wonderful experience. It's really American immigrant story. I mean, it's it the perfect totally story. It is totally the American immigrant yeah. story. Absolutely. Yeah. Anita, as we get start to wrap up here, because we know you're really busy, but I want to ask you one question about there's obviously a lot of Americans that are worried. They're not sure what's going to happen with this new president. But I just want to talk in general about the way the country works in that obviously right now, that as we record this, president-elect is selecting his cabinet members. How much, just so people are aware, I mean, this cabinet and, you know, the president, like how, I'm just asking like how much guidance, how important is the cabinet, how much guidance, like in other words, I feel like I've gotten a lot of emails from whether it's listeners or people saying like Donald Trump's in charge of everything. This is going to be, you know, they're worried, but I feel like that it's not, I mean, as much as he's in charge, he will be in charge. I feel like there's a lot of people around him. Is that right? The president of the United States ultimately is going to be the final decision maker on just about every decision, as they should be. That's what they've been elected to do, but they've also been elected to, and what this president, as all presidents have said, they want to put together the best possible team that will bring the best possible information to provide the best possible guidance for a president to make the tough decisions, the big and the small decisions. You can see this playing out in this transition process right now, which honestly, I have to say, and your listeners should know, Transitions now start so much earlier than they ever did. As a result of the 2000 election, which I talked to you about, where for five weeks, the president incoming, you know, we didn't know who the president was going to be. Nobody can fully have gotten, you know, a handle on the you know, what's happening in the government, the resources that would be available to help go through this process of identifying what the priorities are, finding, vetting the right people for these jobs. I mean, there was, it started so late and we had to do a lot of catch up. George W. Bush at the time of the transition in 2008 said, no president should have what I had to coming into the White House. There's too much at stake. This is the first 9-11, post-9-11 transition. They need to have access to the important information at all levels of the government. So a process began to be put in place in 2009, which was really, and you heard Barack Obama refer to it the day after the election this year, that George W. Bush and his administration provided every possible resource so that they can get off on the right foot at a very difficult time during the financial meltdown. He is doing the same thing with Mr. Trump. But one of the other things to note is that over the last year, 
the United States Congress passed legislation in April of 2016 that made resources of the government available to the two-party nominees who won their party nomination for president. So that means starting this summer, staff of Hillary Clinton, staff of Donald Trump were already working on identifying the points of contact in the agencies, understanding the decisions that were in front of them, identifying people in the agencies, career people that they could work with to assemble information, began to understand the positions that needed to be filled, began to look at candidate profiles so that they can give it to their hopeful winner after November 8th to speed up the process and decision-making. All of that should give people comfort that a lot more has gone into this than you ever were able to do before. And this is for a guy. Now, when Donald Trump won, absolutely, I can see people just saying he's an outsider, he doesn't know the government. That's exactly what he was elected to be, someone that would bring a fresh perspective to how we have run our government. There are people looking at candidates that fit that profile who are experienced, yet who are change agents. That's just an important function, and you're starting to see these decisions being rolled out now. So I want to be very confident in the process as it unfolds because I know it started a lot earlier. I know there were good people on both teams working on it, and I think that ultimately the decisions are always going to be the president-elect and the president. That's how it should be. The responsibility always falls on their shoulders for both good and bad. But the team that they surround themselves with, they want the confidence that the best possible information that could come to them. And, you know, Americans need to feel confident that the process by which they made those decisions was very sound, very methodical, and very measured. And which is, that is comforting to hear some of the things that they've done in recent years to make the transition easier. And I will say, you know, whether you like President Obama or not, I think it's been kind of refreshing the way he's been carrying on with President-elect Trump. It's very important. The American people, this is a bruising election. Sensitivities are still very high. And to the extent that every leader who's in a position where Americans are listening to what they have to say can promote and support the idea that, you know, the election is over, we have to move on, we have to give the new president a chance to succeed, that is really important. And, you know, we live in a country where we are blessed to be able to have the freedoms to say what we want to say, but we also have to be respectful. And I think, you know, you found that example at the Hamilton play the other night with Vice President Pence is a manifestation of that. And some people say, oh, that was rude, that was horrible. You know what, it was a little... I have to say, I think crossed the line to a certain extent. But, you know, you have to look at what Mike Pence said about it, which I think is the most extraordinary of all. He turned to his daughter and to his nephews that were with him and said, this is the sound of freedom. And you know what? That's what people, the naysayers, those who didn't want Donald Trump elected, they need to hear those messages. Too. So it just sort of calms down. Everybody turns down the temperature and really have a constructive civil discourse around issues we all care about and have differing opinions. I'm very encouraged that President Obama said what he said, also that Hillary Clinton said what she said. You can imagine how hard this is for oh her God. 30 years of 30 years of her life. She, you feel she couldn't push it over the finish line. And there are a lot of, you know, reasons for that. But each of them are in a position because they have supporters and they have followers to say our country will move forward. 
And, you know, we have to give the newly elected leader a chance. Beautifully said. And it's so great to kind of hear like a backstage mm-hmm. info from somebody who mm-hmm. obviously knows very well what she's um, talking about. Sure. You know, I do think that perhaps people underestimate that the peaceful transition of power is a gift of our country. It is a gift. It's, it's not a given. And there are many, many countries in the world where that does not happen. So it, right. it's something to take very seriously and to, right. I would say, treasure and, uh, you know, be very proud of. Anita, we know other people are really dying mm-hmm. to speak to, with you right now about this. Mm-hmm. We want to thank you so much for uh, taking oh, the time to speak to us. Thrilled to join you. Thrilled. We really appreciate it. You're a gem sure. in uh, the Italian American crown. Uh, certainly a gift to our community, and and we're very grateful. Thank you so well, much. Well, I thank you both of you for all that you're doing, giving you know so many people a chance to share their story and to you know learn from each other. So I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I'd be happy to come back to you anytime. I think that Wonderful. there'll be. Lots to talk about, and I'm sure hoping for more Italian-American appointments. That interview with Anita was really powerful. It was great to hear her story, her success story, coming from an Italian immigrant neighborhood, making it to the White House, and of course talking about this whole transition that's very relevant and going on in our country right now was just was great to hear it and great to be a part of it. Now it's time for the Italian American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations. We try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives, or even read something that a listener submitted. However, in today's segment, you will hear from us. That's right. Dolores and I are going to reflect on some of the things that we've learned now that we've actually been doing this podcast for one full year, which I Crazy. I can't believe. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been fun and we'll, we'll dive into it. But before we do, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services, including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes, yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums, and musical events, and more. All right, so Dolores, it's time for us to jump in here in the story segment and reflect on a year of doing this, and I don't know where to start. Do you? (laughs) I know, really, there's been so much. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to start personally with uh, what we mentioned in the intro, you know, this idea of saying yes, as as listeners um, probably know by now, this idea for the podcast really started with you, Anthony, and then you, you know, asked me if I would do it with you. And I said, yes, right away. It just seemed something so perfectly suited to my passions and my interests and my experience without getting too much into it. There was a time in my life where I might have been like, oh, it's what, where's that going to lead? You know, what's the point? I don't know. I might have been a little more hesitant, I guess. But uh, I've learned uh, as I get older to say yes to life and, and to take what, you know, God brings our way. So I think one thing that has really come through to me big time is just that we need to say yes to life. And Tony Reale, our guest in episode 17, he also talks about this, how, you know, he got to have his own show on ESPN because he just started out in the beginning by saying yes, you know, nothing was too small for him. Nothing was too uh, intimidating. You know, he just, he went to work every day and said yes. So that's a really important message. And uh, we've done so many amazing things this past year that I 
definitely did not see coming when we first just casually decided to do this. Yeah. We've met so many amazing people. We've been to so many uh, interesting events. We work with the National Italian American Foundation now. We've met so many terrific people through that organization. You know, our world have just really opened up and all because we said yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have to say that we have met a lot of amazing people, a lot of famous people, a lot of everyday Italians. In both instances, it's been thrilling. But I have to say for me, one of the coolest things that I got to do so far was at Arthur Avenue, spend 40 minutes behind the counter at Mike's Deli with David Greco, which which we posted a video of on our page when it's going to be in our upcoming episode, holiday episode. But again, just getting to do stuff that we never thought we'd get to do and really I mean, we've really learned a lot about Italian-American history. I mean, listen, Dolores and I are obviously Italian-Americans. We're proud of our heritage. Dolores spent time writing a book before the podcast. But I think it's safe to say that we've both learned a lot, like going to museums and interviewing authors. And I think just realizing that we have such a rich history of people that I didn't even realize just beyond even what I thought. And it just keeps going. Yeah, I think that part of perhaps what listeners love so much about the show, at least I I hope, is that we're on the path with them. You know, we're learning as well. We're learning as we go along. Maybe that I grew up, uh, let's say, in a more Italian environment than some of our listeners who are a few more generations removed. But that doesn't mean I knew all the stuff that I've learned this past year and, and everything you and I learned. We just we get on the mic and we share it with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, that's one of the main points for doing the podcast was the idea of preserving memories and traditions. And I have to say that I think in one year, that's definitely happening. I mean, if you look at our website, ItalianAmericanPodcast.com, between the episode, the podcast episodes, the blog articles, just capturing our own family events. We've gotten together a few times with our families, made some episodes out of it, and then going to events and talking to other people about their families and their backgrounds and their histories. That this is being preserved, essentially. It's being preserved so yeah. people can listen to it, look at it. We hope to do more video stuff over the next year because that's a whole other dimension. It's definitely, we're progressing and doing what we, what we set out to do, which is great. That's right. And it's really an exploration, you know? I mean, every time I write a blog post, for instance, I'm exploring the topic like I do in, in everything I write. You know, I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write about what I already know. You know, I, I think of something that maybe is on my mind that week and I explore it through the conversation that I know and am fortunate enough to have with our audience. It's really a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It is a conversation. And the one thing, too, that I think has really stuck out for both of us is some of the people that we have had on the show, like Lydia, Adriana Trigiani, Tony Reale. They're so warm. Everyone's so warm and everyone is so engaging and it speaks to the warmth of the Italian community, the Italian people. And that's definitely blown Dolores and I away. Not that we didn't think any of these people were going to be like that, but these are busy people that have a right. lot of stuff going on. I mean, Tony Reale had us come to his studio for like the whole day, sit with yeah. him and just spend time with him. And he gave us what I thought was a wonderful two-part episode where he would just kind of opened up and told us about his history and the challenges and, and everything. So. I think that's been a very inspiring part of this process is that when it comes to your heritage, everybody's on board. You get the sense pretty much everybody's been rooting for us 
along the way. And when they hear that there are two passionate young Italian Americans doing a project like this, they really it's exciting to them, it's inspiring to them, and they want to do what they can to support it and then by extension to support us. So you get the sense that uh, this connection of heritage, of ancestry and whatnot makes it so that people are just, I don't know, like a little bit more loving than they would be if we were just, you know, news people knocking on their door for an interview. Exactly. I think the nice thing about the podcast is that we can highlight the past, preserve the past, and then move along with the future. You know, Anthony, one thing in in addition to the whole idea of saying yes, one thing I've really learned throughout this year is the the sense that there's a trajectory to the immigrant experience. In my personal life, I've noticed, of course, that things have changed throughout the years. Things have changed in my family. Things have changed in our community. The way it was for me growing up here in New York, it's not exactly the same. Like you just said, a lot is the same, but people marry, people move, people die, people get older, you know? And for me, before we started the show, I think I always just found that a heartbreaking circumstance of my life, maybe just something that me and my immediate circle of people experienced. but. What I've learned through doing the show that I wasn't aware of is that is part of the Italian-American experience. It's not just something that happened to me and, and my people. It's, it's something that's happening to our people and its storyline and our generation of Italian-Americans. Our issues involve reconciling what successful assimilation into American culture has done to our community. That's something we have to face that my parents didn't have to face and and our grandparents didn't have to face and our desire to reclaim some of what's been lost. So that's been not only eye-opening, but very comforting for me to know it's not just like an issue that weighs on me, you know, it's, we're all talking about it and it's something we have to deal with. No, absolutely. And I think that's the nice thing about the podcast and just online avenues in general is it allows you to find your community, right? People you can share ideas, challenges, thoughts, experiences. Yeah, your with. tribe. Yeah, your tribe. And I think that one thing that's been really great about this is with the opportunity to write articles and do podcasts and talk to all of these different Italians who share this experience, we can kind of really start to understand the issues, the challenges that we're all facing, the same goals we have, the ideas like this whole idea we highlighted the work ethic as being something that a lot of Italian Americans have this amazing work ethic and drive that's been passed down from their, you know, their immigrant family members, right? Because they came here and they, there was no option. There was no, there right. was no slow speed or else you were dead, basically. Well, yeah. And there, and for many of them, there wasn't much help. I mean, it wasn't like you were going to get some assistance from anybody, maybe, you know, the mutual aid societies, but that was Italians helping Italians. That was it. And, and I think that that's carried over good or bad to us. Right. So sometimes we talked about like with Tony Reality, it could potentially burn you out if you're not aware of it. But on the other side of it, it's what's driven a lot of Italian Americans like Anita to be as successful as they've been, make it to the White House and and beyond. And so it's interesting to, to explore issues like this that have good and bad around them or different emotions around them. And you get to process them together, you know, and experience them together. I think that's a cool part of it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the community that has kind of amassed around the podcast has been another, I would want to say like thing I've learned, but thing that has come as a really beautiful surprise and gift, you know, to know that there are so many other people out there who were looking for something like this. You know, we found that the podcast and uh, all the other outlets we've been building this past year, they were needed. And we are gaining more and more people who are joining the community because they feel a lot of the things that you and I, Anthony, feel, right? This need to preserve and also extend into the future our heritage, this desire to make sure that our children and the next generations, they reap all the beautiful benefits that we did by being a part of an Italian-American family, an Italian-American community, you know? So that's been really terrific too. the listeners, <laughs> the readers, you know, it's been great. It has been great. And, and one other thing that I'll add here is the other thing that I've learned is about food is that it's not just good food because of the ingredients. It's Italian food is good because it has a purpose and it brings people together. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've gotten that through a lot of guests. Lydia talked about that a lot. She said it's the, the table is the magnet that brings everybody together. We've had a couple episodes with our families together, with your your mother cooking, of course. And so, you know, that gives you a, a different perspective of that. You know, people say like, oh, Italians, they eat spaghetti meatballs, this and that. But there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason that there was Sunday dinners yep. and still is in some places. And so, again, you're looking, we get to look at things and understand why they're the way they are, as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, Italians eat Italian food. Right, exactly. Right. As opposed to like a surface superficial joke. Oh, we love uh, spaghetti and meatballs. We're trying to dive deeper and say, well, why do we love spaghetti and meatballs? Yeah, they're delicious. Exactly. But really, you know, spaghetti and meatballs on a table made by somebody, you know, in casa is something that draws people together. And that's the point, you know, and also dovetailing, speaking of Lydia, one other thing that I've learned, and I really learned it from Lydia, from our interview with her, and I will always be grateful to her. It's funny because what I'm about to say is something I grew up with. I saw it, but when we spoke to Lydia, she just somehow articulated it, that it just went straight to my heart. And that's when she said that it's work. Keeping a family together, keeping traditions alive right. is work. And somebody has to do the work or it won't happen. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in today's day and age is some people have forgotten that because we're so busy and our modern life is so crazy and we're always on the run that, you know, what I saw with my mother, for instance, and my aunts, this real attention to, I'm going to cook a big meal and I'm going to take the time so that, because if I don't do it, my family, you know, I risk my family not staying together and the traditions not being passed on. I feel like it's easy to lose that in today's modern American society. So that's a Huge thing I learned. And I really, Anthony, like I have not been the same since that conversation with Lydia with respect to this. I really put it to heart and I've really implemented it in my life. And I now go out of my way and kind of work twice as hard as I may have in the past because I want to be one of the people who does it. Oh, absolutely. And listen, that's the whole point of doing the podcast is not just for us, which is great that it's affecting us, but hopefully it's having the same effect on our listeners. And from the feedback that we've gotten, it has, it has had that effect on them. And that's like the whole reason we're doing this is because if you listen to a podcast episode and then you make it a point to 
go for dinner Sunday with your family where right. you, you make an exactly. hour drive where you wouldn't have, that's it. That's kind of what we're trying to accomplish here. And your support and your messages on Facebook, on Twitter, on email, responding to our newsletters, all of it's very helpful for us to continue to keep going because like Laura said, I mean, in the podcast is work. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's it's work that we, we want to seem easy but it's a lot of work <laughs> but it's work that we want to do to keep building this community up and passing these memories along and preserving them so just to thank you from us for your support we look forward to continuing to come out with new episodes like i said we got a holiday episode coming up from arthur avenue which i think you're going to love and by the way Go visit Arthur Avenue if you can. Oh, yes. I know we'll talk about this more in that episode, but it's time now. It's the holidays. You can get in there one day early and just see it while everyone's there, while it's busy. And it's just a really, really magical place to go for Italian-Americans. All right. So with that, as we close out this episode here, we'd like to take a moment again to recognize our sponsor for this segment of the show, Select Italy. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit, while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you're in Italy. The company recently expanded its offerings and services to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit SelectItaly.com and SelectCroatia.com. All right, so now I'm going to kick it over to Dolores, and she'll take us out. All right, Anthony. So, of course, a reminder, all your crisp gift needs can be found at ItalianAmericanPodcast.com store. And I remind you of our social media addresses. I did want to just read a review, an iTunes review that we received. We love getting these from you guys, and we love to share them. We read them all, of course, and this one was so moving. I had to uh, take a screenshot and send it to my siblings, to my family, and they were just like, wow, this is this is so great. It, you know, it must be so great to know that what you're doing is resonating with people, and the answer is yes, it is. So, Amici, please don't hesitate to leave us a review. We love hearing from you, and the more reviews we get, the more um, iTunes basically promotes our podcast so that other Italian-Americans can find it. So this one is from Gina Marie 70, and she writes Bravo with a five-star review and says, I couldn't possibly express how much delight this podcast has brought me. I've spent countless hours listening and re-listening to these episodes. The new ones can't come out fast enough. It has become my daily companion as I navigate LA traffic, and I've never been so happy to spend hours commuting. I've laughed at dozens of stories and reflections that could have very well been my own. They were that familiar to me. And I've teared up and felt the sting of memories that hadn't been conjured up in years. This podcast is a true gem. Dolores and Anthony's primary mission with the podcast is to get folks to consider their roots and reach out to connect and reconnect with family. I can honestly say I've spent more time in the two months since finding this podcast doing just that while lighting the flame in my children as well than I ever had before. Bravo, Dolores and Anthony. Bless you for this gift you've given our community. You certainly have much for which to be proud. I look forward to many more hours of listening enjoyment. Wow. wow right, that's, Anthony? That's a great way to celebrate one year of the podcast for sure. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Gina wow, Marie is 70. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for that. So beautiful. And to hear that we've helped you reconnect with your family and inspired you to get your children to do the same. There's no better gift. So grazie mille. And moving on, let me tell you where you can find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at, it's been a little while, Anthony. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at Ital American. That's I-T-A-L. And you can find us on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. A presto.